Amen. I'll give it a 10. It's easy to dance to, and I like the song. I think that's a great song. It embodies what I believe Acts 1-8 is talking about when we talk about brag on Jesus and everything we do. I think the, the lyrics to that song really encapsulate that, not only in what we say, but in what we do. So praise the Lord. Lord, thank you that we're nobody, but you're somebody. And the only reason we're anybody is because of you. I pray that you'd get that from our head to our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Revelation chapter 6. We find the seven-sealed scroll that Jesus is able to open. And in that chapter, we see the first four seals, being the four horsemen sent out. And then we get to the fifth seal in verse 9, and that's where we're going to land today, is on the fifth seal, verses 9 through 11 of chapter 6. Why don't you stand with me and let's read this in unison. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Amen. The Word of God. You may be seated. Now, these people who had been murdered because they were identified with Jesus and they followed him and the people who hated Jesus hated them and just like Jesus had been unjustly murdered, they were unjustly murdered. And it records that they were speaking to God and they addressed him as holy and true. And the question is, how long before you avenge the injustice done to us? The fact that they address him as holy and true really reinforces their request. Because one, they know he's holy. That means he has no toleration of sin whatsoever. Zero. Zilch. Nada. God holiness means he's set apart and he's pure and he has no no willingness to tolerate any sin in anybody or anything and I mean you see the first example of that in the Garden of Eden I mean how many times did Adam and Eve have to sin before they came under the death sentence and were expelled from the garden the Bible says he who uh, he who keeps the whole law but yet breaks it in one point is guilty of breaking it all because 
God is absolutely holy and perfect, and that's the only way to have a relationship with him is to be completely holy and completely pure. The Bible says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. These people understood that, and they understood they had been sinned against by being murdered for the name of Jesus. So they're confused. God, you're holy. Why would you let this injustice stand? And then he's holy and true. And the idea here is that God is faithful to what he has promised, and he's faithful to who he is. And God is righteous. God is just. God tolerates no sin and no injustice. So they're addressing God with regard to the attributes of God that are relevant to the fact that they should be avenged and the people who have unjustly murdered them should be judged. And they're saying, God, you're who you are. Why haven't you given us justice? Why haven't you judged them yet? Well, I think that's true for many of us can empathize with that because there's many of us who recognize that we ourselves have prayed things that are consistent with God's will. We know the Bible reaffirms what we're praying about and yet God seems to delay in his response and we're, we're incredibly confused and even frustrated by that. Now, I'm not talking about when I drive past the car dealership and there's a brand new pickup over there. And I go, Lord, wouldn't I look good driving that? Somehow, I don't think that's a high priority for the Lord. For me, it may be for me, but I'm not sure it is for him, right? For me to be driving that pickup. I'm, I'm talking about when we've got a, a family member that we love and they're not walking with Christ, and we're brokenhearted because God's brokenhearted about that, and we want them to turn to Christ. You know, I'm talking about when somebody has, has got a marriage that's falling apart, and we know that's not the will of God, and we're praying for that to be restored, and we don't see any progress with that. I'm, I'm talking about the things that the Bible is crystal clear about that we pray about and we don't see a resolution and we like them are confused and frustrated well perhaps the answer to their prayer is found in another question and that would be why do the disciples of Jesus have to suffer persecution well Again, there are several places in the Bible that Jesus answers this question, but I don't think any that are more poignant than in his talk with the disciples at the Passover meal at the Last Supper. And conversation is recorded in John 13 through 16 that Jesus had with the disciples as they sat around the Passover and celebrated what we call the Last Supper. And part of that conversation, an excerpt from it, is in John 15, verse 18 through 21, that I think addresses the question. If the world hates you, Jesus says, understand 
that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you, a servant is not greater than his master? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name because they don't know the one who sent me. So Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, I was unjustly murdered by people who didn't believe me or the Father who sent me. And so if you follow me and identify with me, the people who are in that same category are going to oppose you just like they opposed me. Robert Coleman writes, Apart from suffering, we can neither experience the depth of his character or the full sufficiency of his grace. God can use it for his glory and even bring the wrath of men to praise him. Now, I'm, I'm convicted as I read this text and I consider this proposition, and I'm bound to ask myself the question, would I be willing to die for Jesus? And, and the answer to that is a very pronounced, I don't know, because I've never been confronted with that reality. I think a better question, though, is to ask myself this question. Am I willing to be made willing to die for Jesus? You see, one of the reasons I can't answer the question, am I willing to die for Jesus, is because I'm not being asked to die for Jesus right now. And I believe that God's grace is that which gives us the power to do the will of God. It's not an excuse to disobey God. It's the power to do the will of God. And those of you who have been around here for a while understand that this is really one of my pet peeves is that I think we misuse the concept of grace in the modern church in that we use it as a synonym for mercy and we use it as an excuse to sin. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, sin shall not dominate you. Why? Because you are not under law, you are under grace. What we typically do is flip that around in common Christian parlance. You say, well, somebody sins. Well, you're not under law. Well, yeah, that's why you shouldn't have sinned. Grace is God doing for you, in you, and through you what you are powerless to do on your own. Grace is always connected to the power of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, what is it, verse 9? where Paul prays for the thorn in the flesh to be removed, and God's response is, my grace is sufficient. Why? Because my power is perfected in your weakness. And so the other thing about grace is, is that God gives it to you when you need it. 
you know, I'm, I'm an expert in something. I'm an expert in worrying. Does anybody share my expertise? Right? And, and worrying is really debilitating. I mean, it, it, it ties you up. Because when you worry, I'm telling you, I've been doing this all my life. When I was like 12 years old, my mother sent me to a counselor because I worried all the time. You know, I mean, it was, it was literally nutso. And, and I was, you know, I'm, I was, I mean, it, it, irrational, right? And, and one of the things that the Lord did, first of all, he taught me when Jesus says, do not worry, when you do the opposite of what Jesus did, says, what's it called? Sin. Sin. Hello. So I repented of it. And worry, as Don Demaray says, is a mild form of atheism. Right? Number two, when you worry, what do you worry about? You worry about stuff that hadn't happened yet. Right? And guess what? It's probably not going to happen. Because your imagination runs crazy with all this nonsense that never happens anyway. Right? But the other reason that God taught me it locks me up is because I'm worrying about something that's potentially not likely to happen in the future. I have no grace for that. So I have no power to deal with it now. I only have grace for right now. Like the manna in the wilderness, God gives us grace a moment at a time to deal with whatever is in front of us at that moment. God is here today with the grace I need for today. And if I'm caught up worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow, I'm getting ahead of the game. i got to wait till tomorrow to have the grace to deal with whatever I'm facing tomorrow. And, and God gives you that grace amazingly. And you've heard me say before, back in October when I had some major surgery, um, and I'm convinced it's because so many of you were praying for me. I'm absolutely convinced of this. I have been a crazy worrier my whole life. I never worried one minute about that surgery. I can only explain that supernaturally. That is not natural for me. God gave me the grace to have victory over that because people were praying for me. I'm 100% convinced of it. Anyway, that's another sermon. But the point is that the reason I can say, am I willing to be made willing, the answer better be yes, otherwise I'm not a real disciple of Jesus. I'm a counterfeit. And I'm trusting that if that day comes, that he's going to be there to meet me with whatever I need for whatever that brings. Just like he's going to be for you for whatever you face whenever you need it for whatever it brings. Now, here's the thing. God did three things for these souls under the altar that are significant, I think, for us in their despair, really, and confusion. First of all, he answered their prayer. You say, well, how's that? Well, it's answered in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, verse 2, it says this, Because his judgments are true and righteous, 
because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality and has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. You see, the vengeance of the blood of those that were killed for Jesus. And who's the great prostitute that's being talked about? Well, it was discussed in chapter 17 and 18, right before this. It's Babylon the Great. Now, what I believe, as we've talked about before, is that God is very creative and prophecy is multifaceted. And embedded in the text of Revelation are not only historical events, but realities echoed in the historical events of who Jesus is and what he's already done. And I believe that on the seventh bowl of the wrath of God at the end of chapter um, 16, when Babylon the Great is judged, that that is the result of the full measure of the wrath of God that was poured out on Jesus on the cross and that Babylon the Great, you, you interpret the Bible in light of the Bible. Do not read the book of Revelation and try to pick up the newspaper and understand it. Every imagery in the book of Revelation has a precedent in the Bible. You interpret the Bible in light of the Bible. And the first evidence of Babylon the Great is Genesis chapter 11, which is the corporate sin of humanity. I'm not talking about sins plural, I'm talking about sin singular as a principle at work in the life of fallen humanity that is instinctively adversarial with God and his purposes. And Babylon was all humanity getting together and trying to overthrow God. And they failed. And the ultimate manifestation of Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, being cast down and destroyed is when Jesus died on the cross, his blood cleanses from all sin. And he destroyed the power of sin in humanity that is real in the lives of those who turn to him and trust him. So it's talking about holiness in chapter 17 and 18. And it's talking about in 19, the finished work of Jesus, which has guaranteed the judgment of unrepentant sin and is the answer to the prayer of the martyrs in chapter 6. Secondly, he gave them proof of his reliability. Notice it says also in verse 11, they were each given a white robe. White in the book of Revelation is the color of the adornment of those who belong to Jesus because white represents what? Purity. Purity, right? I mean, that, that's the historical precedent for, for wedding dresses for wives being white, is it not? Isn't that, isn't that the context of that? But beyond that, it's the historical Christian color that comes from the book of Revelation because to be in Christ is to be washed pure before God. And, I, and it's, it's the most ancient form of Christian dress um, and called an alb. Alba, I think, means white in Latin. Who knows Latin? Does Alba mean white? I think it does. No? Maybe not. Yeah, it does, right? Yes or no? You don't know. <laughs> and uh, But anyway, we'll look that one up, okay? That's your assignment. <laughs> 
But, but that being said, the ancient, it's like a plain cassock, really, that's white called an alb. And I remember in my youthful zeal when I first began ministry, I desperately wanted to wear an alb every Sunday. You got a rope tying the thing around your waist and this white thing. All but for my wife. <laughs> you know, when I told her I wanted, she said, you're kidding. <laughs> what are you talking about? No way you're going to, that's look, the stupidest looking thing I ever saw in my life. You're not going to do that. So I didn't wear one. But I'd still like to. I'd still like to. But, but that being said, they were given this white robe, and the white robe was a token of assurance that their final redemption was on the way. God was taking care of them and would take care of them, and even though it wasn't immediate, it was on the way. And oh, by the way, here's your clothes to wear at the wedding. Because 19 is the wedding of the Lamb. And then he gave them a reason they had to wait. And this really blows my mind. And I'm trying to hurry here. We're a little bit tight on time. And I don't want to keep the folks keeping the nursery. But he gave them a reason they had to wait. Look at 611. They were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed just as they had been. Now, I want you to compare that to 2 Peter 3, 9. In 2 Peter, Peter is answering the question, why hasn't Jesus returned yet? And all the early church, the first century church, the New Testament church, expected Jesus to return in their lifetime. And Years went by and he hadn't come back and Peter is answering the question, why hadn't he come back yet? And Peter says in verse 9, the Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all come to repentance. And we talked about that before, is that the number one prophecy, the return of Jesus, is for everybody that needs to hear about Jesus and have a chance to turn to him and trust him and be forgiven and and receive the life of God and forgiveness for the sin, be delivered from his wrath, for everybody to have that chance to have it before Jesus comes back. Only God knows when that is. But notice what is added to that formula in verse 11 in the, in the response to the, the, the people who had been murdered for their witness for Jesus. Is not only does the full number of people hearing the good news have to be fulfilled, but the number of people that are going to be killed for Jesus has to be fulfilled. And my question is, who are the disciples yet to be killed? Very well could be me. Am I willing to die for Christ if I knew that that would ensure his return and that's the full number of disciples who would be killed for his name just like they were? You know, I believe the whole Bible. I believe even the maps in the back. But I don't like the whole Bible. You've heard me say it before. I don't like it. 
A lot of stuff the Bible says I don't like. I absolutely believe every word of it and praise God for it, but I don't like it. Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Count me out. <laughs> but I'd rather be in Christ Jesus than not be persecuted. And I think that the reason a message from this text and this principle biblically is so profound and so different for us is because we have been blessed to live in a country where we have the freedom to follow Jesus. And I know you hear a lot about the erosion of religious freedom, and I've been hearing it for 46 years since I've been in the ministry. But I can tell you this, in 46 years, I've never had anybody from the government come to me and tell me I can't preach something. Not one time. The only people I've heard that from are Christians. They're the only ones trying to tell me what to preach. <laughs> but what I'm saying to illustrate that is we have been incredibly blessed to have freedoms in this country. I, I remember vividly when I was in a doctoral program that many of you remember I was in a few years ago and many of my classmates were international students I remember some of my classmates were pastors in northern India northern India is not a safe place for Christians and I remember them talking to me about some of the things that they deal with in terms of persecution I mean I'm not talking about people just giving them a hard time I'm talking about physical harm as a result of identifying with Jesus. And I'm talking to these guys, and they're just talking to me, and they're, and they're not happy about it, but it's a matter of fact. And their whole demeanor and their whole countenance is, I mean, that's what it means to follow Jesus. I mean, why, why am I surprised? I mean, Jesus said this would happen. So it's just normal life for us as a Christ follower where we live. It just goes with the territory. And I'm thinking, what a contrast to those of us who have never lived under that kind of situation. And another brother that's a good friend of mine, in fact, he called me about two months ago. He's an a Anglican bishop in Nigeria. And in northern Nigeria for years, Boko Haram has been making it life difficult for Christians, big time. And in his diocese that he oversees of many churches, he actually showed me pictures of people in the churches that he is an under-shepherd over where they had been attacked on a Sunday morning where people broke in the door while they're sitting there meeting with machetes and began to hack them to death. And he had pictures of this and showed it to me. These are people under his care spiritually. I'm sitting there like, man, I feel about this big. And, and, and he's the same way. He's going, you know, man, this is bad, but this, this, this is what the Bible says it's going to be like. This is about, this, if Jesus got murdered, if all the apostles ended up dying a painful death because of their identification with Jesus, why should we be immune? 
And Jesus actually said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when people persecute you on account of me. These people were acting like they were blessed. God gave them a measure of grace that I thankfully haven't needed, but it's nonetheless real. I find that Jesus' response to our perspective on these things is fascinating because in Luke 14, we get an insight into Jesus' perspective when the context is he's preaching and there's a lot of people coming around him, great crowds coming around him. Contrast this with American Christianity. What, what's our perspective? How do we measure effective Christianity in America? Nickels and noses. How much money comes in and how many people are there? How many of us drive by a great big church that's, you know, big as six flags over Jesus? And we go, man, that must be a great church. Look at all the people that come there, right? I mean, how many of us do that? I mean, that's the American way, is it not? Right? Well, here's Jesus. Now, great crowds were traveling with him. So he turned and said to them, Glad you all came today. Thanks for coming out. Appreciate it. You know, have a good time. No, he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross, read that in our context, whoever does not sit in their own electric chair, that's what they understood that to mean. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's, so he tells that to the crowd. Why? Because he realizes narrow is the way that reads, leads to life and few there are who found it. He, he realizes they don't really get it. They don't really understand what it means to follow me. And I want full disclosure here. I want, I want them to know up front, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the cost of discipleship. And before Bonhoeffer was murdered by Hitler in the concentration camp because he refused to compromise his conviction to Jesus and his conviction to righteousness and stand up against injustice, he wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship, and the famous takeaway in the quote from that is this. When Christ calls a person, he bids them come and die. The reason those under the altar were willing to die is simply because they already had. They already had. They had become, as Paul says in Romans 12, living sacrifices. They had been, as Paul says in Galatians 2, crucified with Christ. And they no longer lived, but Christ lives in them. They had, as Jesus said, already taken up their cross when they decided to follow him. I... 
This is not a feel-good sermon. But it's true. Because it's straight out of the Bible. And it's the reality. I don't tabulate these things. I just read after people who do. And I'm told that in the last just few years, there have been more people around the world killed because of their commitment to Jesus Christ than in the previous 2,000 years combined. Right now. And even in our own congregation, I'm going to close with this. Even in our own congregation, I was visiting, sitting in a life group meeting and having a discussion the other night, and one of our members just casually shared this experience. That many years ago, they were working overseas internationally in another country, and they were part of a ministry that reached out to children. And there was a young man, I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years old, I don't know how old he was, somewhere in that neighborhood, that he shared the good news of Jesus with him, and excitedly this young man turned to Jesus and received him as his Lord and Savior. When this young man's father found out about it because their family was of a religious persuasion that hated Christians he came to this brother and threatened him with his life and he literally said he said to him you have killed my son so I'm going to kill you for him to receive Jesus in his mind meant that he had killed his son and our brother in our congregation freely acknowledged that he was a little bit uptight about that because he had to see this guy where he worked and thank God he never followed through on it but here's the rest of the story is that many years later he was randomly listening to a Christian radio station and there was an interview with a man who had come to faith in Jesus from another faith background that was at odds with Jesus and they were interviewing him about his life and when he got to his story, he said, many years ago when I was a young child, I was in a certain country, he mentioned the country, and there was a man who shared the good news with me about Jesus. It was the same guy. The guy that he had led to the Lord many years before and had his life threatened over it, randomly listening to a Christian radio station, he hears that guy many years later being interviewed on Christian radio and telling his story of how this man had led him to Jesus. And that's a brother in our congregation. He's coming soon. It'll all be over.